0: Allah
1: Voice of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah the Gracious, the Ever Merciful, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Today is Monday the 6th of November 2023. The time is 7.03am and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Dr. Shaquille live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we've brought two topics for you today. The first topic is about analyzing the complexities of the modern protest movements um, and their outcomes. So what do they actually achieve? Have they achieved anything in the past? And we shall look at um, the Islamic perspective as always of protest movements as well. And then uh, in the second segment, uh, which we shall start at around eight twenty, 20, um, we will talk about modern slavery. So, modern slavery in the U in the UK does it exist? Does it not exist? Um, and if it does, how to stop it? Please do join us. Uh, this is a live show. In both of these discussions, by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Aslam alaikum. Peace be on you, um, Dr. Shakeel What a pleasure to uh, to be co-presenting with you this morning.
2: Asalam alaikum. Peace be on you and all our listeners.
1: Uh, you uh, you're a veteran written- veteran of uh, uh, of the voice of islam uh, radio station in itself uh, but uh, this i believe is the is the first time you're presenting on uh, on the drive time show, sorry on on the breakfast show so a very warm welcome to thank you thank you
2: that's right thank
1: you right um, let me start uh, as always with the headlines appearing in the newspapers um, this morning And then we will uh, move on to a couple of other important things that uh, have actually taken place within the um, the Muslim community in the past uh, couple of days. Um, So the conflict between Israel and Hamas and its impact in the UK continues to lead many of the papers this morning. The Sun's headline is show some respect with the O's replaced by poppies. It says war heroes have called for pro-Palestinian demonstrations planned on Remembrance Weekend to be cancelled, while the Metropolitan police chief has been urged to ensure services are not hijacked. The Daily Telegraph leads on the Met Commissioner's uh, Sir Mark Rowley's coming under pressure to ban a march planned for Armistice Day, which is next Saturday. Sir Mark has been warned by some of his own officers that protesters could clash with the veterans commemorating Remembrance Weekend, according to the paper. The Metro leads on a quote from Home Secretary Suela Braverman, saying the feet of protesters who try to vandalise the cenotaph next weekend will not touch the ground before they are jailed. Organisers of a pro-Palestinian demonstration planned for Armistice Day have said they will avoid the Whitehall area where the monument to Britain's war dead actually sits. The Guardian focuses on the fighting itself. As it says, Israeli strikes on Gaza have intensified, while violence have also flared up on the Lebanon border. The Israeli Defense Forces has um, indicated its troops are planning to enter Gaza City itself within the next 48 hours, the paper reports Israeli media as saying. The Times says Israel has stepped up its uh, assault on Hamas with IDF troops encircling Gaza City. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has defied calls, uh, <clears throat> defied calls from across the Middle East for a ceasefire to avoid, uh, uh, to avoid fighting and has actually vowed to continue it until Hamas frees all hostages, it says. Its neighbor Jordan has said Israel is losing its humanity, according to the paper. The ISA says the UK's National Security Council is not prepared for heightened terror threat due to the Israel-Gaza conflict. The paper says five serving and ex-intelligence sources say under-resourcing and disruption caused by the repeated changes of Prime Minister over the years has left it reactionary to threats it should prepare for. The Daily Mirror focuses on the story of a British surgeon who was trapped in Gaza. Saving lives in hell is the headline as he praises the selfless courage of medics trying to help people amid the horrors of war. And finally, the Financial Times leads on plans by Rishi Sunak to allow companies to bid for new licenses to drift for fossil fuels in the North Sea each year. The scheme will be part of Tuesday's King's speech, which sets out the government's key policies for the year, the paper says the announcement will allow the Prime Minister to contrast his pragmatic, proportionate and realistic approach to achieving net zero by 2050, with Labour's plans to make, uh, retain a clean energy superpower. Those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics that we shall be talking about. Uh, So the first topic, which we shall start at uh, 7.40 today, so slightly later than we usually do. um, And that is about analysing the modern uh, protest movements and their outcomes. And then the second topic is about modern slavery in the UK and how to stop this. And um, uh, from about um, a couple of minutes on after this short break, uh, we shall talk about uh, this Praise for Peace event that um, has actually taken place uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community only yesterday, uh, as well as um, um, uh, an event which actually took place in, uh, in central London as well. So a lot more details on both of those events right after this short break.
0: Allah
3: Voice of Islam Radio
1: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show From the South London studios of Voice of Islam Today is Monday the 6th of November 2023 And we're about to talk about this very important event, which took place uh, over the weekend here in the largest mosque in Western Europe, the Battle Fatou Mosque or the House of Victory Mosque, and it was about. Um, uh, it was called "Prayers for Peace," and it was about the current conflict going on in the Middle East. Dr. Shakir, would you like to talk about a little more about that event?
2: Uh- Yes, so this is an event with the title, as you've said, Prayers for Peace. And it took place yesterday, Sunday, the 5th of November, at Batul Fatu Complex, which, as you know, is the largest mosque complex in Western Europe. And uh, this was organized by the Ahmadiyya movement in UK. It was attended by representatives of various religions and political backgrounds. So we had uh, representations from Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Sikh, and of course Muslim uh, backgrounds. And similarly, we have all the major political parties represented uh, during the event. There was uh, a total attendance of several hundred people. Um, The purpose of the event is in fact to show solidarity amongst the members of the community, whichever background they may be from, to get together. Think about the difficult situation that's uh, evolving around the world, but particularly in the Middle East, the war between Israel and Hamas, and to, to uh, pray or contemplate and meditate together on the suffering that the innocent people are going through on, on each side, as well as to supplicate to the God Almighty for a better and a peaceful solution. Um, Hazrat Miza Masrur, Ahmad, the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in his Friday sermons over the last several weeks, has been talking about this and encouraging uh, the Ahmadi Muslims to increase more efforts in terms of prayers. He's urged time and time again the world leaders as well to concentrate their efforts, to de-escalate the conflict, and work towards a lasting and a peaceful solution, which must be based on justice. Um, Hazur has uh, encourage the Amadi Muslims that the only weapon Amadi Muslims possess and that we need to turn to is that of prayers and that uh, we must, in our daily prayers, dedicate a time to pray particularly for this particular situation. Um, Hazu's words, given the current state of the world, I once again draw attention to the importance of prayer. The conflict is intensifying resulting in an increasing number of innocent suffering with the pace at which the situation of war is escalating and the policies being apparently adopted by the Israeli government and major global powers, it seems as if a world war now looms large before us. Now, that's a very Serious point to think about. And you and I know that uh, His Holiness has been warning the world leaders and uh, major legislative institutions around the world about this eventuality uh, for more than a decade. Yeah, absolutely. And it's become more commonly understood that the risk of a potential world war, which could be so devastating for a huge section of the world population and huge suffering, is increasing by the day. Uh, Hazur says, now even the leaders of certain Muslim countries are openly stating, as have Russia and China, and similarly, Western analysts have begun to write and proclaim that the scope of this war seems to be broadening. If immediate, wisdom-based policies are not adopted, the world will face devastation. All of this is being reported in the news. So, on one hand, we are being warned and people can see the difficult situation in the world, but at the same time, His Holiness is also giving us a message of peace and a potential solution. Mm. And He's talking about a, the possibility still still there that there can be a peaceful solution provided mm. we focus on justice. Yep. And that is Uh, irrespective of which political country we are talking about or which religious background we may be talking about, because justice applies to everybody equally and fairly. So that is one uh, teaching of of Islam that Hazur is focusing on. And at the same time, we as Ahmadi Muslims believe that Allah is almighty, Mm. God is almighty, And he can turn the world affairs around, provided we put in our effort and provided we supplicate very seriously and sincerely. And that is why Hazur is focusing on these two aspects. And that is, I suppose, one way that Ahmadi Muslims then take solace Mm. from his message and his guidance.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think so should uh, the rest of the world, and I think it's it's about time that the rest of the world actually uh, was to heed to his advice and his words that he, you're absolutely right, he's been talking about this for, for actually more than a decade, for, for a couple of decades actually now. And uh, uh, it uh, the situation is only getting from bad to worse. Um, there, is a, there is a website um, that I follow, it's called the... Um, the atomic clock, um, and th- this was something that I learned uh, about from the fourth head um, or the fourth successor of the promised Messiah. May peace, may peace uh, be upon him. Um, and uh, that clock is uh, is only a few seconds to midnight. The midnight meaning um, a catastrophe. So it's uh, it, it, it is upon us now. Unfortunately, I mean it's uh, we take no pleasure in in in. In, in saying that unfortunately but um uh, if the world wouldn't heed the advice of his holiness and come to um uh, uh come to its senses and establish absolute justice and and nothing but absolute justice which was basically the point of establishing united nations something like uh, the global body that we the and which was actually the the cause of the the absence of which was the cause of the failure of its predecessor the league of nations and unfortunately again uh, you know uh, same things and in, and in, in, uh, injustice is is abound is all is all around us where Uh, You know, people are uh, politicians, senior politicians, politicians uh, who have not only a voice, who have a um, um, who can make a difference. uh, Stop uh, short of even calling for a ceasefire when we know that thousands of children, women and children have unfortunately been killed. I mean, there were horrific images coming out of out of Palestine Going back to this uh, event that you referred to, Dr. Shagil, uh, there were um, um, a few interviews and a few clips from um, from this particular event that uh, was of Islam attended, and we would like to play them now for our listeners. Let's listen in.
4: A message to the world. A message to our brothers and sisters in Gaza, and if you have anything for the politicians here, what would you say to them? As a mother, as a as a as a woman, why does that affect us so much? I mean, we spoke about this, right? Yes. Why is this so close to your heart? Uh, it's one. One scene I saw in a television was a child was crying, the house collapsed and he's crying for his mom and dad and he lost his mom and dad. and they were he was about under five. and then later on I saw his sister, she's about three and he's holding her hand, and then I find the third brother, who was about three, and then they just come and holding each other crying. And I think that is, I saw awesome. I know. We all feel this.
2: We all feel this.
4: sorry. I just saw that it's my children. And um, any politician or any human being so that sin. If he's not been affected by it, then there is no humanity. Because how you like your children to be on that? environment all the time it is not one month it has been enough it's been a long time and it's enough it's enough because they have been suffering quite a lot and now it starts affect us now. It's for every day, going to work and things affect us. Eating affects us. And we feel like hopeless. And um, we only things can do. It's like stand up here and just get that number for the politician to feel our how we feel, you know, it's to, to understand we're actually getting really in pain and hurting by it. So we. They're responsible for the ease, the misery for us and for these children who are actually losing their mom and see that each other into pieces in the floor. And if I saw my daughter like that on my son, it's, it's hard. If you could send a message to anyone in Gaza, what would that be?
0: What would you tell them?
4: Just, I just ask God this to bring some some peace for these families, and we're always with them. Although we are not there, we are here, but we wish if we be there, to, there. To, they, are, they are on our hearts. And uh, is I feel like I'm guilty, like I've done something for them to do, have that life. I've done nothing, but I feel like like we all contribute you know this they are not unlucky they live in that life but it has to stop we are with them you know
0: thank you thank
5: you
1: So that was a a clip from um, the Praise for Peace uh, protest that was actually held in central London. Apologies for the background noises there, but this was actually in the middle of a street um, in central London and um, this was one of the interviews that was conducted there. Um, Let me now play another interview that was um, actually conducted uh, at the very same event. Let's listen in.
5: So how do you think that we can achieve peace with this situation?
6: End the Israeli occupation of Palestine like simple it's not it's not their land you cannot just go into someone's house and take it based on stories written in a book that's utterly deplorable what's going on there has to be a political situation that enables peace and resolution for this because decades 75 years under occupation 75 years of like slow horrible murder genocide and culminating now in this is absolutely inexcusable and the people in the global north and the global south are now finding out about how deep the corruption goes and how Israel has been created as a puppet state for the U.S. and the U.K. to control the oil and gas trade through the Middle East. Because the U.S. and the U.K. are terrified of the Middle East, and it's oh, it makes me sick to my core. It makes me ashamed. Thank God that I'm not actually English. Yes, I was born here, but I don't have English blood, and I am... I don't, know. I don't know what more I can personally do than put my feet on the streets and be in support of these people who are suffering. And I really, really, I hope and I pray every single day that something can be done, that the power of us being on the streets, of lobbying our governments, of emailing MPs every day saying, why are you allowing this to continue, that it is having some effect, I have to believe that.
7: And uh, what's a message for the people in Gaza?
6: I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry that it's taken this long for the world to notice what you're going through. And we're here and we see you and we are trying, we are trying to get our governments to notice and to pay attention to what the people want, which is for you to be safe and free in your homeland.
7: Thank you so much.
5: So, what's brought you here today? This is the least I could do. I feel like helpless. I feel so sad, so depressed, so stressed, seeing like innocent people, let alone Muslim children like being killed and nobody cares. So at least we can at least at least we can just show that they're not alone. We we, we with them, we hear them and and we will we'll never give up until they have their freedom and hopefully this is sooner than later. Palestine will always be for, for Palestinian people and occupation will end and history tells us nobody can occupy somebody else's land forever. The British Empire, where is it now? I mean, it had to be kicked out and Israel will end and I feel it's sooner than we even think. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just, inshallah.
7: And uh, what's a message for the people of Gaza that are going through these
2: difficult times?
5: What, what, what I do for them, uh, what I'm saying for them, what I pray for them, I do supplication, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, keep them stronger, keep them have faith, don't give up, and keep them like, you know, um, keep their heart stronger, because unfortunately it sounds like everybody against them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the greatest and who whole Allah is will never be defeated, will never be weak, will never be left alone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with you. And from here, from London, what I see that lots of people, not only Muslim, not only Arab, but I see lots of non-Muslim, non-Arab actually. Coming here to say we're human, we're human, just it doesn't take you to be Muslim or to be Arab to stand with Palestine, just to the humanity. Like everybody talks about Israeli has the right to defend himself. but what about Palestinian people being uh, be under besieged and blockade for 17 years, let alone like since Nagba 1948? And there is like the international law, I mean, Israel is like. Don't give a shit about anything about the law. They do whatever they want because they actually the Zionists control the America, control the West. And I'm totally shocked and I'm totally like heartbroken seeing how corrupted how biased the Western media. Like seriously, they send like military the the, the, the British send uh um real forces and the Navy to support Israel? Really? Do you really need weapon? Obviously, they give them more weapons to kill civilians. And why they didn't give this to Ukrainian? Because they cannot declare war on Russia because Palestinians are weak. Now everybody shows like their muscle. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with us. And and we've seen in history, especially in our Muslim history, like how many like, smaller group defeated, like in Ghazwat Badr, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ghazwat al-Ahzab, subhanallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a great son, he's watching, and he with you guys, and we are with you, and the least you can do is just donate, pray, speak, tell the people that those people are unfortunately being brainwashed, so we have duty to educate the people, not to believe in our view, but to try to open their eyes because they only see one-sided media, bias, and and, and and for us we have to speak up and tell them, no, that's not the truth. It doesn't mean that we convince them to know our view is the truth, but at least listen and see the other side as well. And then you can make your own judgment, but don't be like blinded by, by the government, by the Zionists, by the media. We are all human. It doesn't matter where you come from, what religion, what skin. We all human, and so many people here came came for humanity. But was, but for us, we came for more than this. For our brothers and sisters, for innocent children. For Al-Aqsa is our second, uh, first qibla, and and will be always have like a great place in our heart. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala will help us at some at some point to free it, as um, Khalifa Omar did and Salah al-Din. Did. Inshallah, sooner than later, Aqsa will be free. Thank you so much. So these
1: were some of the interviews that were conducted at an event in central London. And apologies once again uh, for the background noise there, because this was um, uh, these interviews were conducted in the middle of a street while that um, event was actually taking place. Um, I must also clarify that uh, the views expressed by uh, by those interviewed were those uh, were there views alone and not the official views of Voice of Islam. Um, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, as uh, Dr. Shakil mentioned earlier has been stressing the importance of prayers and that is the official message from uh, from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and let me quote once again from his holiness Hazrat Ahmad, who is the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and he says and I quote therefore Ahmadiyya must pay special attention to prayers we must not become complacent at the very least one prostration during every prayer or at the minimum in one of the prayers should be dedicated to this cause while supplicating during it. We should, ince- we should intensify our prayers, pray for the end of oppression, make efforts with your means and pray f- both for the oppressed Muslims as well as for the establishment of a comprehensive and long-term strategy by Muslim governments. We must feel profound empathy for the plight of Muslims. We believe in the promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, who despite our being regularly afflicted by them, Expressed the following sentiments for the Muslims in a Persian couplet, the translation of which is O my heart, be considerate towards them for they claim to love my Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him therefore, um, His Holiness continued our love for the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him demands that we pray intensely for Muslims may Allah grant us the ability to do so and also to the Muslims and may he bestow wisdom upon the world Ameen, Sumameen Right. Um, unquote. Um, Dr. Shaquille, you were there yesterday at uh, the Prayers for Peace event, which uh, was held here within the Beid al Mosque complex um, in South London. Um, tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what that event was about and um, what happened there.
2: Uh, Yes, I was there yesterday and I I was quite touched by the event. Um, And like I said, it was attended by people of various religious and political backgrounds. And they spoke about their feelings in relation to the world affairs at the moment. Um, So there were people who showed solidarity with the um, Ahmadiyya Muslim stance that, in fact, any kind of injustice is not acceptable, that any kind of suffering Mm. is not acceptable, Mm. and that, yes, we need to focus on uh, the principle of absolute justice, which is the Quranic guidance, if we have to have peace. I, I remember somebody saying that without having justice, there cannot be peace, and that is also in line with the Islamic principles or the teachings in terms of political governance, Um, there was again members of different religious backgrounds. Um, They spoke from their perspective about the importance of unifying to bring some stability to the world situation, to the situation in the Middle East, to, to prevent undue suffering even if there is a military war going on between two factions mm. um, the uh, the national president of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association mr Rafiq Hayat, he's emphasized on the point that the the Islamic teaching firstly is to avoid military confrontation at all costs. However, if it is imposed on you or if you are engaged Mm. in military confrontation, then there are some very uh, specific regulatory guidelines Mm. for how Muslims can engage in warfare. Mm. And one of the principal ones is that you cannot attack or injure anyone who's not a military personnel who's engaged in war with you, which means no civilians can be hurt Um, So attacking women, children, elderly or non-combatant people or civilians is wrong from either side, according to the teachings of the Holy Quran. Similarly, some of the rules of warfare that Islam teaches is not to damage um, holy places of worship of any religion, even if they belong to your enemy country. Mm not to damage any infrastructure for food production. So, mm. crops, water sources must not be damaged even if they belong to the opposite side. Right. Um, trees must not be, a natural habitat must not be destroyed. Mm. So, the, uh, in principle, mm. Islam guides us even the ethics of how warfare is to be conducted. Mm. So, whether it is Hamas or Israel, if they breach these uh, principles, Mm. then it's likely to lead to suffering because the Islamic teaching primarily focuses on preventing suffering and bringing peace or promoting peace. After all, the name Islam means Mm. peace. Um, So that was another very beautiful thing from yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I remember, yes, one other very interesting thing was that uh, school children from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, read out verses from the Holy Scriptures and various Holy Scriptures. So, the Old Testament, the Torah, the New Testament, the Holy Quran, uh, all were quoted and uh, beautifully, Mm. all scriptures have spoken about tolerance, Mm. about peace, about forgiveness. And these were the verses that were being emphasized during that event. Uh, similarly, there was a very uh, beautiful poem read by a group of children, about 20 young girls and boys, school, school age, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the theme of it was the Ahmadiyya Muslim slogan, love for all, hatred for none. Right. But um, they kind of touched on that how our hearts suffer, if anyone in the world suffers, and that we need not make our anger or our sense of revenge A reason to cause or imply suffering on somebody else. So I I think it was a very touching and nicely conducted Mm -hmm. uh, event. And the good thing was that people were um, from different backgrounds were joining together to express their views and show solidarity. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Bring everybody together uh, under one roof, um, break bread together, talk about peace, and um, talk about the importance of justice, really, which is which is what seems to be absent from, uh, from today's world. Right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, Dr. Shaquille. Right. We shall now take a, a very quick break. And we, when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about the complexities of modern protest movements and their outcomes. Do stay tuned.
0: Allah.
8: شهادو
3: Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, a.
9: Allah, the Lord of Glory, has also given me the glad tidings that some of the nobility and some of the kings will also join our group. He vouchsafed to me the revelation
8: I, will give you to you, to you.
9: I shall grant you blessing upon blessing so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments. Those who seek blessings in this manner will enter into the Baath, the Pledge of Allegiance. Because of their entering into the Baath, their governments will also practically belong to this community. Then I was shown those kings in a vision. They were riding upon horses and were not less than six or seven. I saw in a blessed dream a group of sincere believers and just and righteous kings some of whom belong to this country, India, some to Arabia, some to Iran, some to Syria, some to Turkey, and some to other regions of which I am not aware. Thereafter, I was told by Allah the Almighty,
8: إِنَّ يُصَدِّقُونَكَ بِكَ وَيُصَلُّونَ عَلَيِّكَ وَيَدْعُونَ وأعطي لك بركات حتى يتبرك الملوك بثيابك وأدخلهم في المخلصين إني مهين من أراد إهانتك.
9: These people will affirm your righteousness and will believe in you and will call down blessings upon you and will pray for you. I shall bestow great blessings upon you, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments and I will join them amongst your sincere followers. This is the dream that I saw, and this is a revelation that was vouchsafed to me by God the All-Knowing. Allah.
3: of Islam Radio
1: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam You're listening to Daniel Zia and Dr. Shaquille Ahmed here live from the studios We are about to delve into the second um Uh, or or should I say actually the first segment, we were talking about um, the Praise for Peace movement. So the first segment really is about uh, the the complexities of modern protest movements and what sort of outcomes um, have they achieved. So the outcomes um, actually uh, over the last hundred years of many people power movements have actually been mixed. Um, It is often reported that um, some of the Uh, mass protest movements uh, anyways often fail to meet their ambitions and aspirations. Prominent among them are the Arab Spring Revolutions in Egypt and Syria and the 2014 Euromaidan Revolution in Ukraine. Um, All of these show that what are peaceful transitions sometimes um, can actually lose momentum and ultimately result in a return to authoritarianism, authoritarianism authoritarianism or even outbreak of civil war. One reason for that is severely repressive states forcing protesters to leave the country or imprisoning them. Another reason is diffusing protest leadership, allowing sections of movement to change tactics and resort to polarization or violence. An additional challenge for nonviolent movements is their marginalization during formal negotiations or political transitions, leading to their exclusion from power or their co-option by former political allies. In a number of recent or ongoing pro-democracy campaigns, for example, in Sudan, Algeria, Hong Kong, Myanmar. Protest movements have been very good at mobilizing large social constituencies, but uh, encounter um, uh, serious limitations when it comes to engaging effectively in inter-party dialogue, or in fact, reform processes and systems. Um, let uh, me now go to our first guest uh, to talk more about um, this. He is Winston Bevin. Winston uh, Bevin is an award-winning journalist. He reported for the Financial Times in London and also served as the Brazil correspondent for the Los Angeles Times before covering Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. Assalamualaikum, Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Vincent. So, uh, firstly, tell us your take about of the the, the protest movements. What what um, what do you make of uh, the protest movements that the world has seen many of in the last hundred years?
10: In the last one hundred years. Yes. Well, I mean, in the last one hundred years, as I suppose, the, human- the period in which humanity really started to understand that protest one way to respond to injustice. It started to really gain prominence in the middle of the 20th century, often in um, dialogue with media. Mass media, I think, was very important to making protest a apparently natural, um, seemingly sometimes the only way to respond to injustice in the 20th century. I think this is something that we can trace historically. There were always ways for regular people to respond to elites. There were always ways for regular people to contest people that were abusing them but protest be- becomes very prominent i think in this age because of mass media um, now in my book uh, if we burn i focus on the decade uh, between 2010 and 2020 mm-hmm. and, it's, and as far as we know uh the, as well as we can count these things it seems as if this was the decade that ha- in which more people participated in mass protests at the other point in human history so it seems like the 2010s uh, actually exceeded the 1960s, which was the last, um, the last, the, the largest uh, explosion of uh, protest that we had seen up until this time. And what I found in the 2010s is that many of these protest explosions experienced victory, often uh, euphoric victory, in the short term. Um, were often uh, became so large that they were able to unseat or Uh, destabilize existing governments, whether in democracies or authoritarian regimes. But um, if if we look back a few years later, after many of the foreign reporters like me have left, um, often things did not turn out as expected, or even in many cases turned out uh, worse than expected. So this is really the paradox that I've been trying to understand recently.
1: Right. So what would you... So if we were to talk about uh, 2010 to to 2020... um, perhaps maybe, uh, if I may, a few years earlier than that, uh, but within this century. So, we've seen uh, a couple of really mass movements. So, there was this protest movement here in the UK, for example, and in many Western countries uh, around the war in Iraq. Um, And that didn't lead to much success. Um, There are a lot of protests going on as we speak about the war in the Middle East, and that seems to be um, uh, not making much impact um, your thoughts?
10: Yes, I mean, so in 2003, uh, I protested the war in Iraq uh, when, um, you know, as a state in California. And I think that what we saw in 2003 was a, a common uh, experience throughout history, which is that if governments choose to, um, as long as the protests don't get large enough to actually threaten uh, the economy, threaten the reproduction of the daily order, if governments choose to, they can decide to see protest movements as a minority and they can choose to ignore them. And I think that's what happened uh, in 2003 in Iraq. Uh, sorry, in 2003 in the U.S. and U.K. before uh, our governments invaded in uh, Iraq. And I think ultimately, very tragically, uh, I think the protesters were proved right. But that didn't matter. Right? And, 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 like being right did not matter. The governments decided to ignore us what happened in the 2010s i think starting especially uh, in tunisia and then spreading quickly to egypt is that the protests actually did get so large that the governments could no longer ignore them the protests did get so large that they stopped society from functioning they did get so large that uh, governments either were toppled or were in a position where they had to give concessions to the streets but this was often something that the protest movements were not expecting that they were not prepared for they um, in, 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 in Egypt, for example, the protesters that put together uh, the events of January 25th and January 28th were not expecting to topple a, a government. When they did, uh, they were quite unprepared for it. It was it was much more than they had asked for. It was, as I said, a euphoric victory. Uh, but then the next steps became very difficult to put together.
1: Right. Um Tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit about your uh, about your book, the Jakarta Method. What was that about?
10: Yeah, so my first book, so, um, as you said, I've been working as a foreign correspondent around the world since about 2008. My first book uh, is about the violence carried out against the left or accused of being part of the global left in the 20th century. Um, the most important event of this book is the 1965 mass murder of approximately 1 million people in Indonesia with the active support of the U.S. government. Um, They were killed for being members of the Indonesian Communist Party or being accused of being members of the Indonesian Communist Party as part of the Cold War. Um, This was the largest uh, uh, communist party outside of the Union in China. It was an unarmed uh, uh, communist party. And this book was about the ways in which the United States were violence. Um, and then this particular type of violence was carried out in 22 other countries around the world as part of the U.S.'s project to construct a global order uh, in which its enemies had as little influence as possible. And of course, the enemies, the most important enemy of the United States in the 20th century, uh, at least from 1945 to 1990, was socialist movements or movements that the United States could call socialist.
1: Right. So. Uh... Until the 1990s, uh, right. So those were the the social socialist movements were the enemy. What, in your uh, to your mind, is the is the number one enemy for United States um, in the last 30 years um, uh, to establish a global order, as you say?
10: Well, I think that the United States as a power is a country that is not very uh, old. It is a country that has always been engaged in some kind of militarist expansion some kind of uh, violent conflict with other forces around the world. I think tragically, this is sort of baked into the DNA of the state governing my home country. Um, and so after the 1990s, the US kind of looked around, or sorry, after 1990, the US kind of looked around for a while, unsure what to do in a world order in which there were no enemies. Uh, by 2001, uh, the certain uh, 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 elements in the Republican Party, especially, uh, Settled on declaring a so-called war on terror. Um, mm-hmm. Often in in the real in in, in real in, in reality, this was often actual wars on real uh, uh, countries in the Muslim world, rather than on terror, which is a very hard thing to actually go to war with. So I would say from 2003 to 2020, uh, the uh, what is called the global war on terror was the way that the United States continued to act as an aggressive and violent power. And I think that never went away. The United States, of course, is still very heavily involved in violent conflict in the Muslim world. But I think increasingly, um, many people in the United States are starting to worry about China as a possible competitor uh, in the rest of the 21st century.
1: Vincent, uh, help me understand the conundrum in, in, in my mind, something I've never been able to, um, um, to sort of fully understand and grapple and continue to grapple with. is Why does the, the media, which is supposed to be um, independent, theoretically right. at least, uh, support this expansionist um, mentality of the United States? You, you've been part of the media. You are part of the media. Help us understand that.
10: Well, the United States, a media in the United States are supposed to be independent, but often that independence is limited to a very narrow set of concerns. Often, the media, well, often I mean, I believe, I would love for U.S. media to be truly independent and in that we treat every single human life as equal on planet Earth. I would like to, to see a media which is objective about uh, the United States and its role in the world, but often the way that we are trained to be, quote unquote, in or objective in the U.S. media, is just to treat Democratic and Republican parties as if they are equally valid. Um, So the things that are considered to be quote-unquote contentious are the things that are between what the Democratic and Republican parties uh, 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 are fighting over. Um, Whereas a relationship, I think an economic relationship and an ideological relationship to the U.S. state shapes the ways that U.S. media operate, um, U.S. media is owned, often by powerful interests in the United States. We operate in an ideological um, situation in which many, many Americans just are, are raised to believe deep down in the inherent goodness or the inherent benevolence of the United States as an actor on the world stage. And you know, I think my, you know, my personal beliefs, based on what I have uh, studied as a journalist over the years, is this is not true. I mean, it can be true at times, but if you if you act that it is true if you, if you approach journalism as if it is always true, you will not be a fair or independent or objective journalist. If you take other views into account, if you're viewing the world from Gaza right now, for example, rather than from NBC, this falls apart very quickly. Um, but I think the so to answer your question, it has to do with the the economic relationship uh, to powerful interests in my country, including to the state itself, and the sort of the deep sort of almost now you say that we have a better role in the world.
2: And coming back to the modern protest movements, what, in your view, can be done better by the activists so that the articulation of their goals um, is more clear and that improves their chances of success and achieving the outcomes that they want?
10: Yeah, I think, that, I mean, I, I, I did put a, I carried out something like 250 interviews over 12 uh, in 12 countries over four years. And I often ask people at the end what they wish that they had done differently, um, what they would pass on to a younger generation of protesters or to other people around the world who want to be revolutionaries or, or, or carry out social change. Um, and one, one uh, lesson did come up from this uh, uh, related to message discipline, which is that, because, uh, the, the, as we say, the media is an actor, whether or not we we admit that we are. So, if the if you are taking a stance which will be is likely to be misinterpreted, or likely to uh, to run against the interests of dominant media in a given country, I think that the, the the protests right now in support of Palestine are a good example of this. Um, often, media will try to lie about what the protests actually are. Often, media will try to distort um, what is actually happening on the streets. So the more clear that you are about, the message, the more clear you are about who's on the streets and what they're asking for, that makes it harder for me to do that. Uh, And another message that came out of these 200 interviews is that many people from Egypt to Brazil to Chile said that they wished that they were more organized before the protest explosion came, that it was often the people that had formed strong organizations, strong links with other human beings working collectively to build a better world that did the best in the heat of the moment because it was very hard to put together effective organizational structures as a response to changing circumstances. It was better to have organizations that could respond just to the circumstances themselves.
1: Vincent, uh, a follow-up question um, around uh, around what you said in terms of uh, the protest movements um, having clarity as to what they want to achieve. Um, doesn't it become a big challenge when, uh, you know, the uh, their voice is being muffled? Um, an example that immediately comes to mind is that of the current conflict again. And I was looking at Washington Post, for example, a couple of days ago only. And... Um, uh, while there was al- almost a half page picture of the family uh, family of uh, hostage um taken by hamas unfortunately um it, it, there was uh, 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 the the uh, there was a ve- actually a very small sort of somewhere p- towards the uh, the end of the front page um bottom of the front page page i should say was um, a news not even a picture of um, Children, uh, Palestinian children being killed in Washington Post. How, how do you, how do you manage this challenge?
10: I mean, I agree with you that it, this is a huge challenge. Um, it is something very difficult that um, not only protest movements but just all citizens of, of the world have to deal with. It is an unfortunate fact that is a, a, a particular configuration of existing media, and they have power to shape not only the way that we see the world, but often in my book I found that media had a way we were able to reshape the actual shape of protests themselves because the way that they the protest actually affecting the outcome. So while I don't know exactly which Washington Post uh, issue or edition or or, um, uh, story that you're talking about, uh, it is pretty well understood by media scholars that the major media in the richest countries in the world have Tended to be more sympathetic to their allies. Um, that would mean, as you suggested earlier, a lack of objectivity, a lack of independence. Um, so it would not surprise me to see uh, uh, evidence of Israelis uh, being given voices, being given, uh, having their stories told in a way which is not extended to Gaza. Um, I've seen many examples of it. and. What I can say is that this challenge um, is real and the best way to, uh, to, to deal with the challenge is to acknowledge that it is real. I mean, I would love to be able to create a more democratic media in the United States. I would love to be able to carry that out myself. But if you are involved in an attempt to change the world, it, it is at the very least, and this is perhaps, quote, uh, helpful to know exactly the terrain in which you are doing battle. And I think that media will be one of these terrains. And the best, as I said, the best you can have your own, a way to articulate your own voices and a way to get your own message out, uh, the better you'll be doing in this uh, field of struggle.
1: We've only got a minute or so left before we sure. have to go on to a, uh, onto the news break. Um, a quick word and, and maybe your thoughts on, um, on the social media and the impact social media is, is having um, in terms of achieving that democracy that you hinted at.
10: Well, one thing that I find quite striking is that 10 to 15 years ago, almost everybody, especially in the liberal media and the English-speaking world, believed that social media would make the world more democratic and more just
1: (laughs) and more free. I remember Uh, those discussions, yes.
10: Yes, and it now seems that we've come to basically the exact opposite conclusion. Mm -hmm. Now it seems that everyone seems to understand that social media scrambles information, rewires our brains in unhealthy ways, um, and privileges Certain more spectacular, or explosive types of messages over over others. Um, I I I I lament that this is the case. I wish it were not the case. But what I would but I would also say is, you know, I'm from California. I know a lot of people that work in, in technology in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. The internet has only been around for a few a couple decades. Yeah. I hope, perhaps optimistically, that it does not need to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And then we can create another uh, democratic movement, perhaps another protest movement, to try to take the Internet back from powerful interests, uh, especially in my home country, that have put it at service of making profits for, for their firms rather than at the spread of information and allowing humans to communicate with each other.
1: Excellent. We must leave it there. Winston, such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so very much for joining us and all the very best with the excellent work that you're doing. Thank May- you so much. May peace be with you. Right. So that was Winston Bevin. Uh, We are coming up uh, to the eight o'clock news. So we shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion with another guest that we have online. Do stay tuned.
3: You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Allah.
1: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from Southland London Studios of Voice of Islam. This morning we're talking about the complexities of the modern protest movements as well as their outcomes. And before we went on to the newspaper, we were talking to Winston Bevin, who is an award-winning journalist. Um, we do have the next guest um, uh, online with us. Uh, Dr. Shakeel, over to you.
2: Welcome, to breakfast show of the Voice of Islam, and peace be on you.
1: Um, right. Uh, so, so the guest. Um, le- a quick introduction of the of the guest is so uh, she's Mabli Jones um, from the Social Change Lab and conducts and disseminates uh, social movement research to help solve the world's most pressing problems. Um, good morning, Mabli. Can you hear us? Good morning. Excellent. Thank you very much um, for joining us.
11: No,
2: thank you for having me. Okay, Um, and just a little bit more about the introduction. Mabli Jones is currently the director of the Social Change Lab. Uh, She joined the organisation earlier this year. She was previously the deputy director of Asylum Matters, campaigning for reform of the UK asylum system. She's also worked in politics as chief of staff and research for Plaid Kimru and for LGBT charity Stonewall. She has experience of a range of social movements and campaigns and was the chair of direct action and campaign group Yr Ierlith, which is the Welsh Language Society, I think, between 2020 and 2022. So thank you for joining us for The Breakfast Show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Social Change Lab?
11: Yeah, sure. So in um, Social Change Lab, um, have you um, sort of alluded that um, to that is um, we're a um small organization where um but we conduct research on social movements and how social change happens and um, so we look at things like um strategic questions about what social movement organizations um should be doing things like protest tactics and the different impacts of um different tactics on um public opinion and policy change And um, and um, also looking at some of the broader picture about, um, you know, what are some of the factors that lead to social change happening and social movements um, having success. So um, we looked a lot um, in particular at the climate movement and the animal advocacy movement. But a lot of what we study also has, um, you know, broader application to all sorts of different issues and um, and social change.
2: So what, in your opinion, are the most significant challenges that protest movements face when they're striving for social change?
11: Yeah, so, I mean, I think from our research, and we've um, surveyed um, social movement organisations and activists themselves, um, and also um, we surveyed um, academics and experts who study social movements. And then... there are a lot of challenges, and I think, you know, anyone who's been involved in um, in protests or, or a social movement will will probably recognise a lot of these. And it, it definitely does depend on the context, but some of the common issues that, that we saw come up in our research were things like um, trying to raise awareness it can be really difficult to get your message out there and um, especially you know in the in the sort of media environment that we have in the twenty four hour news cycle where things are so saturated um, and also in general you know trying to get coverage of protests in the media and trying to get your message and um, covered in that way um also things like strategic questions about trying to think you know what are the best um what's the best way to position yourself as an as an organization or a protest group who you can work with what issues you're going to focus on um and whether you're you know mainly going to be targeting politicians and trying to lobby them or whether you're looking more like mobilizing people in the street um Related to that, then, you know, tactics, like what kinds of protests are you going to do? Um, Is that, you know, looking at things like doing big marches and rallies or is it kind of um, direct action? campaigns um and then sort of more generally um you know and i'm sure this will be familiar to anyone who's worked in grassroots activism is just a lack of resources so you know a lack of um money but also you know that struggle to to get more people involved and and for people to have enough time to dedicate to working um on these issues on top of their jobs and then i suppose it's also important to mention you know particularly when we look at um well, countries around the world, actually, including here in the UK, um, the increasing role of, um, sort of government repression of protest. You know, we've seen in the UK the new laws aimed at um, cracking down on protest. And, you know, obviously there are some countries in the world where it's much, much harder um, to be involved in this type of activism.
2: So from your experience, have there been protest movements who've been successful achieving their goals? And if so, then what was their ch- what was their reasons for success?
11: Yeah, definitely. I think you know, if, if we look back in history, you know, so much of what we value today, whether you know, when that comes to um, you know, positive changes that there have been in society or the rights of different groups and citizens, you know, a lot of that has come about because of ordinary people getting involved in activism and um, you know and we can look at some of the famous examples like the civil rights movement and um, you know who, who achieved so much in terms of changing social attitudes but also real legislative change um, and you know, things like an end to segregation and, and voting rights for people who are in the states and in terms of to success you know that, and the things that we see time and time again with social movements is that use of non-violent disruptive tactics so um, you know that's things that like um, sit-ins, um, protests um, direct action all you know using not using violent tactics but um that kind of disruption does actually force an issue onto the agenda and does help to lead to change. Um, you know and we can see a similar thing with um if we look at another famous example like the, the suffragettes, the movement for vote for women, um, you know, that was a broad movement of women from all over Britain Um, and they used you know a lot of different tactics you know things like lobbying politicians and petitions but some of them were also willing to use those disruptive tactics and go to jail so um there are lots of examples from history and i think you know also more recently we can look at things like um the lgbt rights movement and black lives matter the climate movement they've all succeeded in you know mobilizing huge numbers of people changing attitudes and and some policy change you know to a different extent but i think that the main lesson is you know social change is very complex and it can take a long time um and often what we see as well is that um you know some of these protest movements that we now celebrate like the civil rights movement they were very unpopular at the time but they did succeed in achieving their aim and i think that's an important lesson for people to learn for um protest movements today
2: Thank you. Coming back to your social change lab, mm-hmm. are there any specific initiatives within your organization that address these challenges and help foster some positive social change?
11: Yeah, so I think um, all the everything that we do, all the research that we do is aimed at, you know, supporting people activists and social movements themselves um to to learn because this is um, you know, traditionally social movements have been kind of undervalued um, and a lot of these questions haven't been studied in like a systematic way we've really tried to look for concrete evidence so we do research on things like you know protest tactics and strategies which what what kind of impact different tactics have um, which are more likely to succeed looking at messaging how activists can get their message out there looking at some of the things that movements need to succeed, public opinion, you know, all sorts of different factors that are useful. And in order to do that, you know, we work really closely with activist groups themselves to try and figure out what questions are going to be most useful to them and then, you know, discuss our findings with them. Um, And then we, you know, we publish all our research on our website. So um, if people want to have a look, they can just go to socialchangelab.org and all our research is there. And I think there's hopefully lots of practical lessons that people can take from it.
2: And in that information, is there some specific advice in terms of how the activists can communicate their goals more clearly and bring more cohesion to their movement?
11: Yeah, I think um, in general, you know, it is is really important having um, kind of clear and and cohesive goals. Um, You know, that can really help with putting more pressure on decision makers like politicians and also public understanding of of what you're trying to do. But... um, you know, and I think anyone who's been involved in, in campaigning would agree with this, that that communication can be very difficult um, and trying to get your goals and your messages out there um, can be really challenging. You know, especially when we look at some of these issues that um, people are campaigning on where there is a lot of hostility um, to the cause, whether that comes from politicians or the media. Um, so I think in terms of some of the things that can help with um communicating and getting that message out there you know a lot of the research that there is out there at the moment and and people are doing a lot of good work on this um is that it's good to start with some of the shared values that we have as a society and appeal to those and why your issue is related to them and you know a lot of as well about having a positive vision for change so that you can really convince people that what you're calling for, you know, is going to take lead us to a better society. Um, in general as well, you know, making sure that you are reaching out to new audiences and discussing with people who aren't involved or supportive of your cause at the moment because that element of persuasion is so key. Um And, you know, we've also seen, and I know you're discussing this with your previous guest as well, about the use of social media. And I think, yeah, the jury's probably still out about um, how helpful that can be. But um, it's definitely in terms of being able to get your message out directly to the people that you're trying to talk to. It can be a lot easier.
2: Okay, thank you very much, Mably Jones, for your insight and helpful advice. Uh, And we wish you the best and peace be on you. And thank you for your work. Thanks so
1: much for having me. Okay. Thank you. Peace Be with you. So that was uh, Mabley Jones um also giving us um, her take on um, uh, on the protest movements. Right, let's um uh, uh, now maybe spend a few minutes um uh, Dr. Keel on uh, the the guiding principles um uh, from an Islamic perspective of um, of the protest movements, we've, we've talked about them um, uh, from a very secular perspective. So the guiding principle, um, the guidance given from the worldwide head of uh, the Amish Muslim community, Hazrat Ahmed, who is the current caliph and the head of the community, um, <coughs> is actually rests on the principles of justice and equality. And um, they offer very valuable advice for all of these diverse um, uh, protest movements. So, um, in a letter, um, uh, the worldwide head of the Muslim Community wrote um, to President Trump uh, a few years ago. Um, He wrote, and I... For the sake of the peace and harmony of any nation, it is a prerequisite that the government, local authorities, and the law enforcement agencies treat all of their citizens equally, irrespective of their skin color or ethnicity. In this regard, the expectation of absolute justice and non-discrimination from the leader of a country as the United States is especially high. This statement echoes the core principle of justice, unquote. Uh, I should say, this statement echoes the core principles of justice, equality and non-discrimination that are vital for maintaining peace and harmony within any nation. His Holiness also emphasized that it is our duty to condemn brutality and stand against injustice, echoing the core principles of Islam. Uh, He calls um, uh, his call to highlight the deep seated injustices faced by black people in the United States uh, resonate with the broader fight for social justice in many protest movements um, as well. Um, Empowering minorities and embracing democracy is another um, important facet of um, of those principles, um, so his Holiness urged uh, minorities including African Americans to actively engage in democratic processes and use their right to bring about change. This aligns with the idea that peaceful participation and advocacy are powerful tools for reform as by, as boycotting the democratic process might only perpetuate the existing norms the active engagement of minorities especially african-americans in the democratic process is a testament to the power of participation bringing about meaningful change uh, within the system um, he also talks about um, a call to action um, dr Shaquille, would you like to take us through that
2: yes so his holiness use the term innocent lives matter Mm -hmm. and supremacy of justice and just to put it into context this guideline came after the unfortunate death of George Floyd in the US uh, which led to another mass protest movement Mm -hmm. Um, so he rephrased the term from black lives matter to innocent lives matter that the lives of all oppressed people is important Mm -hmm. and it matters and he would Uh, bring up these terms in line with the Quranic injunctions and the supreme of justice. These um, terms encapsulate the essence of these protest movements. He said that if they focus on these principles, they are more likely to succeed. Um, And the call to action underlines the need to recognize the value of every life and the absolute importance of justice in our day-to-day society. And these terms resonate with the broader call for justice accountability and equal treatment for all people regardless of their race ethnicity or background the call to action is clear it is the duty of muslims and all individuals to actively participate in causes that address social injustice and inequality and to align our efforts with movements that advocate for justice and reform in doing so we contribute to making the world a better place and in accordance with the principles of the teachings of Islam. Um, There is a well-known tradition from the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace be on him, um, referenced from Sahih Bukhari, which is one of the most authentic collections of the traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, The tradition goes that the Prophet, may peace be on him, said, help your brother, whether he's an oppressor or he's an oppressed one. And the people asked him, O oh, Allah's Messenger, it is okay to help him if uh, he is oppressed, but how should we help a person if he is an oppressor? And the Prophet, peace be on him, re- responded, By preventing him from oppressing others. Hmm. So this tradition underscores the Islamic principle of preventing oppression and promoting justice, that it becomes a duty of the Muslims to participate. In such efforts, but keeping in mind that we've got to do it within uh, the framework of the law of the country. And at no Mm -hmm. stage are Muslims expected to be in breach of the law or on the wrong side of the law. Um, so I, I think that His Holiness's guidance has been uh, very useful for a lot of young Amadi Muslims who I see in various debates and discussion forums, and that they are um, expressing their view and put their weight behind any call for justice, any call for reform or for social justice. But, uh you would hardly ever see or come across an Ahmadi Muslim youth mm. to be uh, involved in violent protest yeah, sure. or on the wrong side of the law on the wrong side mm. and um, I think that this is very key because, as we know that sometimes these movements can become right. difficult, mm. just like you were reading the Uh, Or I think we were listening to the news earlier that there have been uh, violence between protesters and the police in Edinburgh last night. So those are the things that we need to be careful about. On the other hand, it is very clear from the Islamic guidance that it is our social and collective responsibility to keep working for better for the rights of the oppressed and for reform in our society.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very, very much for that uh, detailed take uh, from the Islamic uh, perspective, Dr. Shaquille. And that brings us towards the end of uh, the first uh, topic. We shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the second topic, which is about modern slavery in the UK and how to stop this. Please do join us in this discussion by calling us at 208 687 You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after this quick break.
0: Allah Akbar
8: the one.
3: To the Voice of Islam Radio.
1: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studies of Voice of Islam. We're about to delve into the second topic of the morning, which is about um, modern slavery in the UK. So, uh, Unseen UK, um, an organization here in the UK, has published a report in October highlighting that the abuse and exploitation of workers is evident in all sectors of the UK economy. Their risks um, are higher in care sectors, uh, care sector and in other sectors because of the significant use of temporary labor and conditions of employment in those sectors. The report further states that throughout. 2022 and into 2023, the helpline has seen a significant rise in the number of cases indicating labour abuse and forced labour in the care sector. Many involve foreign nationals, as the UK opens up new visa routes for employment uh, to meet labour and forced uh, labour shortages, um, the potential for this exploitation actually increases. Many workers who come to the UK do not know their rights or how to raise a concern. Uh, The report also says the workers have paid large sums of money since visa rules were changed from last year. Unseen UK has said a number of over 700 care staff use its helpline in 2022. Let's now go straight to our first guest uh, for this segment, who is Lauren Saunders uh, from Unseen. She's, um, Lauren is Unseen's Head of Research and Policy and currently Acting Head of Frontline Services. Lauren has over six years of experience working with survivors of exploitation. And in 2022, she pioneered Unseen Survivor consul- Consultation Group as well. as alaikum, Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show.
12: Hi, thank you.
1: Thank you very much Lauren for uh, for joining us. Um so so tell us a little bit about um uh modern slavery or the face of the modern slavery here in the UK. Uh a lot of us uh, would uh, would be surprised to hear that that term slavery you thought slavery was was abolished. Uh, so how how is it still prevalent in the society as modern as uh, you know uh, 21st century UK.
12: Yeah, so slavery today is is quite different how it, how you, Uh, might might picture it from the the past but it is relating to similar situations long hours very little pay someone might be restrained from moving having free movement Uh, they might be forced to work in um, a sector or work that they don't want to do or they may want to do that work but expected different um, outcomes they they have no benefits they have very little money a lot of their money and income is taken by the exploiters um, and they're forced to work in really poor conditions. So, yeah, it's the situation of of slavery today. It's it's slightly different, but it's still very prevalent.
1: Um, So Unseen UK recently released a report on the rise in modern slavery reports. Uh, Could you could you tell us more about your findings?
12: Yes. So uh, we're seeing a lot more cases happening in the care sector. We note that exploiters will manipulate individuals and and go where there there needs to be situations where they can exploit people. And with changes in visa schemes, with more care needs, more work needed in care, then actually that is a really kind of avenue that they can use and exploit and manipulate people um, to work for really long hours. And again, those poor conditions with the low pay. Um,
2: So these employees... um The general public, how can they pick up signs that someone's being subjected to modern day slavery or they're being exploited?
12: So there might be many signs that indicate exploitation. For example, there could be someone watching over that person's work. Uh, So maybe someone in the background always keeping an eye. Uh, That person may not have access to any ID documents. So they might not have access to their own visa or passport or anything like that. They might be picked up from work and dropped off at the end of the day, a a very routine, regular occurrence that there's always someone collecting them at the end of the day. They may report not having any um, money to be able to pay pay for their own food or, or accommodation. They might be living in situations with lots of people in a crowded room they might not have any options to, to have any freedom of movement. So when they finish for their work for the day, they might be forced straight to go back to their accommodation. They may even be forced to work in another job. So it might be a case of they, they work in one area and then they're forced to move to another area at the end of that shift. So it's making sure that that person has the ability to, to move around if they wanted to. They've got access to their own finances, their own documents and being able to to talk and and. And uh, many people are very fearful of their exploiter. So being able to have an open conversation with those individuals is really important to understand if they've been in something that might not be quite right.
2: And why is there a rise of modern day slavery in the UK, particularly, as your report says, in the care sector?
12: There could be many reasons why um, modern slavery is rising. Uh, we're not necessarily sure of all of them. There could be a case of more people are becoming aware of the situation and therefore being able to report it better. But it could also be the fact that exploiters are using some of the challenges and, and access to the UK to, to manipulate for their own good. For example, exploiters may be playing on the fear of deportation or... Um, They may have family members that they can threaten or there might be abusive situations. If people are fleeing difficult situations, uh, for example, the things that are happening in Gaza or Ukraine, if people are fleeing those, those places because of concern for their lives, then actually exploiters can manipulate that. Um, take those individuals into situations of harm and and use them for their own gain, really. So it's being aware of some of the challenges that are happening globally that might make many people vulnerable to exploitation and using that into situations of of harm in the UK.
2: It does sound like quite a difficult situation for these uh, victims of modern-day slavery. So your organisation, The Unseen UK, Does it work with the government to bring in some kind of statutory or legislative changes to protect such exploitation?
12: Yeah, so we're regularly working with government partners, members of of parliament. We work with statutory services. We work with businesses. We work with members of the public, really kind of anyone to raise awareness of the issue and listen to the people who have experienced it and how they were how they were exploited what they what they um went through to be able to then influence the strategic responses to that so how do police Get better at investigating these sorts of crimes. How do the government make sure that legislation is hard on on the perpetrators of this and not that not the victims? So we really kind of work as a multi agency approach with lots of different partners to really influence how we can better respond to bond slavery because it is such a big issue.
1: Lauren, what sort of uh, <clears throat> Lauren, what sort of response have you seen from um, from the police? So once you do report um, uh, somebody who's, who who maybe. Um, uh, undergoing slavery, modern-day slavery. Um, do you find that police has the resources to be able to, to look at uh, you know, these rising number of complaints that you talk about in your report?
12: Yes, I think some of the difficulties with that is many people are very fearful to talk to the police or any authority figure about what they've been through because an exploiter will manipulate and lie and coerce and give false information then there could be threats. There could be threats to the family members, Mm. that individual themselves, abuse, physical abuse all of these things contribute to people being very fearful to open up to the police so it's, a, it's about giving the time to allow that period of trust to build up give that support so that that individual can talk about what they've been through so that then the police can investigate i think it can be very difficult for individuals who've been through a situation of exploitation to work with the police on an investigation because it can take a long long time to 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 get the evidence needed for an organised crime group to be mm. um, to be really kind of captured, uh, identified, but it is really important that um, w- we are actively going out and supporting individuals and making sure that they have the the resources and the police can support them, so that we can then um, bring the pro- um, perpetrators to justice.
1: And in your experience, when you do report something to the police, they they are able to uh, to look at those complaints um, yeah. And, yeah. and actually investigate them. Yes. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Lauren. Uh, uh, that was very insightful. Thank you so very much for joining us. Peace be with okay.
12: you. Thank you very much. Take care.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. So that was Lauren Saunders, um, who is Unseen's Head of Research and Policy. Let me go straight uh, now to our last guest uh, for this morning, who is uh, Peter Um Peter's um, focus is on labour exploitation Um and uh, he is a policy and research, um, uh, works for Felix, which is a policy and research organization challenging and transforming the systems and structures that make uh, workers vulnerable to abuse. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show.
13: Hi, good morning.
1: Thanks, Peter, for joining us. Um, right, so uh, tell us about Flex. Um,
13: So yeah, so FLEX is a policy and research organisation, and we take an approach where we look at the factors that produce vulnerability to exploitation in the first place. Um, For instance, some of our current work includes uh, includes research on various high-risk sectors and the related visas, the rights of people seeking asylum, and we also engage in parliamentary advocacy. Recently, we worked intensively on the so-called Illegal Migration
1: Act. Hmm. Right, so... um how? What is your, your experience over the past 10 years? What trends have you seen in terms of modern day slavery?
13: Well, in the last 10 years, there have been major developments in how the UK deals with modern slavery, particularly since the introduction of the Modern Slavery Act of 2015. But the UK has taken a very criminal justice and immigration enforcement focused approach. It focuses on, you know, quote unquote, rescue operations, waiting for a situation to deteriorate to the level of modern slavery and then trying to prosecute culprits. But one of the interesting aspects of this is that it, fail, it fails to meaningfully address the root causes of modern slavery. And this is where we've seen some really particularly concerning trends. So, in fact, at the same time as introducing the Modern Slavery Act, uh, the government was also making life harder for migrant workers by bringing in hostile environment policies which uh, are recognized as increasing the risks of exploitation in the first place. Um, For instance, as Lauren has mentioned, many exploited and documented workers are fearful of coming forward to authorities about abuse because of their fears of detention and potentially even their removal from the UK. But building on this, since the end of free movement and the labour shortages that came about as a result of this, the UK has increasingly relied on restrictive and poor quality visas for instance, the seasonal worker scheme in order to shore, shore up the UK's labour market needs while simultaneously failing to improve conditions for workers themselves. In this way, the UK's labour migration policy is leading to issues for example, like bondage and destitution, and we'll go a bit more into that if you're interested.
1: Yes, absolutely. Let's do so. Uh, you know, uh, Our previous guest, Lauren, was, was talking about you know all of these global challenges which actually exacerbate Um, The challenges around modern slavery as well. So there there are wars, as we know, going around um, uh, all around us. And uh, a lot of people, uh, that leads to migration and then uh, the the associated challenges with that. So, um, yeah, how do we tackle those?
13: Well, I think there's a good example of the adult care sector um, and to look at just how that unfolds and how that produces risk to exploitation. And this is a really interesting thing to look at. Um, really interesting and unfortunate thing. So, increasingly, there have been reports of severe forms of exploitation in the UK care sector, with issues like illegal fees, extremely high repayment clauses, people giving far fewer hours than they expect, um, and they're not able to really get by on that, and non-payment of wages, debt bonded that sort of thing. Hmm. So, what's led to this? Well, to respond to labour shortages in the U- in the care sector, the government added sh- the shortage of enlist December 21, uh, and allow care workers to use the health and care worker visa. But the number of health and care worker visas granted grew from around 47,000 in the year ending 2022, to over 121,000 people in the year ending June 2023. So that's a 157% increase. Um, But what we're seeing is that poor regulations, poor conditions in the sector and restrictions on the visa are putting people Uh, significantly at risk. So we really need to look at um, addressing these visa routes that are so restrictive that people end up being trapped in exploitative situations. So part of this means addressing conditions in the sector, but also address some of these really harsh uh, immigration policies that the government has in place as well. So we need to tackle both of these together and develop an approach to labour exploitation that's preventative in scope. So by that I mean Making sure that we have a robust labour market enforcement system, that we have um, enough labour market inspectors to make sure that people are in actually decent work as opposed to exploitative work, and that we're not placing the costs of the adult social care sector on workers themselves.
1: Right. So, isn't it uh, well and good to, uh, you know, to talk about the. Um the role of enforcement and the government doing better, but uh, the government doesn't want immigration, um, as we all know.
13: Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing as well is a massive labor shortage in the U.K., Um, And again, to look at a couple of the visas, there's a seasonal worker scheme um, to address the shortage of agricultural workers. There's um, a massive increase in the number of people on the health and care worker visa to address uh, the shortage in the adult social care sector. So there is a real need for migrant workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this isn't something that will go away. So rather than just create a race to the bottom, Um, and placing the costs on workers, we need to make a labour migration system that works for people, that gives uh, migrant workers options and gives them pathways to decent work.
1: Right. And finally, Peter, uh, how do we raise awareness around modern day slavery here in the UK? This is not something that's often talked about in the media.
13: Well, I think it's incredibly important to promote an understanding of modern slavery that moves away from a disproportionate reliance on the paternalistic rescue-based approach and starts to look at what's causing this exploitation to take place. And we need to raise awareness of how migrant rights and workers' rights are a central part of the picture in ending modern-day slavery. We have some easy-to-understand blogs and publications on our website, which I would recommend to anyone interested in learning more about how workers are being exploited and what we'd recommend to address these issues.
1: Excellent, Peter. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, this was uh, very ins- insightful. Really enjoyed speaking to you. All the very best with all the excellent work that you're doing. Peace be with you.
13: And with you. Thanks
1: very much. Bye-bye. So that was Peter uh, Peter Wielschnick, who is from FLEX, which is a, a policy and research organization challenging and transforming the systems and structures that make workers vulnerable to abuse. Um, right. Um we are coming towards the um uh, towards the close of um this topic um and our show as well so uh, let's maybe uh, dr we'll spend a few minutes talking about uh, the islamic perspective on bonded labor on uh, slavery on modern slavery so Hazrat Mizama Masood, Ahmed, the current head of the MDF community, um, um, recently said that in today's world, physical slavery um, no longer ex- exists, but it has been replaced by economic bondage and servitude, wherein the relationship between the most powerful nations on earth and weaker countries has become akin to the relationship of a master and a slave. So, um, uh, and, and there have been several reports of how... Um, as we were talking about earlier, care sector in the UK has actually faced um, uh, challenges. Unseen UK in its report, as we were talking about earlier, states that since September 2022, the number of job vacancies in the adult social care sector has risen. Um, analysis of this workforce in England by Skills for Care showed that posts uh, had increased by 0.3% to 1.79 million in 2021 22 while fewer fewer posts uh, had actually been filled, reducing reducing by 3% to Um, 1.62 million. Um, The Holy Quran states that the hallmark of a true Muslim is that he should care for all of God's creation and should comfort and support those in need, whether they seek help or not. Therefore, this being the case, they should not wait for requests for help, but a true Muslim rather sacrifices in ways of doing whatever, and this being the duty to recognize the sufferings of others and help them overcome their troubles or challenges. The promised Messiah, the founder of the the Muslim community, wasted no moment to serve or help others. For example, he lived in a small village where there was no medical care, uh, not only out of desire uh, for help to mankind uh, he studied traditional native medicine and kept medicines uh, at his home um, the holy prophet um, may uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him once said unlucky is the man whose parents live to an old age and he fails to earn paradise um, even then so um, that's something that um, uh, um, actually talks about uh, service uh, to humanity and um, In his book, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, Hazrat uh, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, uh, who who was the fourth successor of the Promised Messiah, wrote that the care um, of the aged uh, is actually more and more being shifted to the state and becoming a burden, um, and, and that cannot bring peace and contentment to everyone to think that a distant relative should be taken care of by the rest of the family um this um uh, is something which is uh, not a, in alignment with islamic uh, principles um anything else that uh, you want to add to that
2: um uh, dr shakil I think you've pinpointed on some of the key points um, in in terms of the teachings of the Holy Quran. It is uh, our responsibility to be mindful of the need of fellow human beings, our neighbors, our relatives, our friends. And like you've also mentioned, that we are taught by the Holy Quran that we should not just be helping those those who seek help. Mm. In fact, we should be on the lookout and that's a very important teaching that um, in, in the, the points that you've mentioned mm-hmm. is included in them. So we should be on the lookout for who may need help, who may be suffering. Um, one of our guests was pointing out the signs of how to identify somebody who may be exploited by mm-hmm. their employers. But there may be people who don't have enough, who may be going hungry hmm. or who may be um, unable to look after themselves when they are unwell. Hmm. They're living alone and they don't have the health to go out and get the medicine that they need. So all those things we can, as a social um, colleagues of mm-hmm. these people, needy people, becomes our responsibility according to the teachings of Islam. And I think this, if this is practiced, this would bring another level of cohesion between members of the society. And of course, in this, there is no mention of what ethnicity or religion the person may belong to. A person is a person, and a person in need needs help. And mm-hmm. therefore, it's the responsibility of a Muslim to offer themselves to help such people. Um I would also add that the book that you've mentioned, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, Hmm. by the fourth successor of the Promised Messiah, May Peace Be On Him, it's a very interesting book because it looks at the development of a cohesive society, a peaceful society, from five major perspectives, from a social perspective, Hmm. which is inclusive of the points that we are discussing hmm. from a political perspective. So the in reference to the, um, the the fairness and justice that's required in political governance from economic perspective hmm. and how the exploitation of the poor by the rich as we see happening through many systems or economic systems prevalent in the world today and it addresses it in light of the Quranic teachings, and then inter-religious peace or inter-religious relationships, again in line with the Quranic teachings. Mm. And finally, at an individual level, how can an individual have a sense of contentment and peace within themselves as a member of the society when we are living increasingly in very um, divergent society with the multi-ethnic mm. um, systems going on all around us? and the level of tolerance and cohesiveness that Quran teaches. So I would encourage it mm. uh, for people who are interested in social value systems and particularly the uh, people who are doing such good work. You know, some of these organizations that we've been talking to the representatives of, mm. in in my mind, they are working in line with Islamic teachings, absolutely, because they are working for the poor, the needy, and those mm-hmm. who are being exploited. Mm,
1: they're very Sharia compliant. If I can, if I can add to that, <laughs>
2: I, I think that's a fair <laughs> comment to make. That yeah. they, this is Sharia compliant work that yeah. they are doing. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Well, g- your quick thoughts, uh, uh, Dr. Akhil, on um, unfortunately this uh, this epidemic that we see uh, mostly in the in 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 uh, in the Western world. Um, uh, about outsourcing the, um, the help for your elderly and um, uh, for your parents when, when they get old. What do you make of that? And, and what, what is the Islamic perspective?
2: You know that I work in psychiatry. That's my field of medicine. Right. And I also come across people of the age when they are either living alone have their family or children having flown the nest, mm. or they've uh, lost their partner and then they don't have contact with the family, mm. or they are in care homes or residential homes and sometimes even in nursing homes if they're too unwell right. and the incidence of depression and anxiety amongst those elderly who are left alone at the whim of the care homes or statutory services rather than their loved ones mm. is higher. Mm. Now, that in itself is an is a important uh, observation that I make. Right. And I think that uh, there was another interesting uh, quote. I forget by who, but what they were saying is that a uh, contact between an elderly parent and their child is therapeutic, not just for the elderly parent, <laughs> but also for the younger generation, of course. So mm. we are m- slowly drifting away from these very important social value systems. Mm. And to be honest, it's not just Islam that teaches these value systems. Right. Many other religions have emphasized on the importance of the intact family mm. and the family support uh, the necessity of the family support systems, right. Um, And I think that we are drifting away from them because of becoming too self-centered, if I can use that expression. We want to live our lives. We want to think that we live only once, so we want to have as much fun or as much energy into our material pursuit, better jobs, bigger houses, etc., or more holidays. Even on Christmas, we would rather be on a holiday somewhere in another part of the world with our partner rather than to, to be available to support our family who are needy Mm. or who are lonely Mm. and this is the aspect that led to a breakup of family infrastructure Mm. and we know that unfortunately in uk the family system has been declining over the last 30 40 years or perhaps a bit more half Mm. a century and we've had uh, difficult uh, consequences of it Many of the younger children have been brought up by single parents and you can, you, you and I know how that can be difficult for the parent but also for the, the younger generation that's been brought up in those circumstances. Absolutely. So all this leads to not just psychological but social difficulties. And here we are sitting here today talking about social cohesion mm-hmm. and the need of harmony and we need to recognize that these teachings that come from religion, particularly the Holy Quran is very comprehensive about the teachings of creating a cohesive society, very mm-hmm. comprehensive, that we need to give value to these. And I respect all these uh, organizations that we've disc- uh, talked to earlier today and the work that they're doing because, in, like we say, in some ways they're working in line with Islamic teachings. 100 percent. Absolutely. And, and
1: uh, you're absolutely right. This, uh, family is the basic, the most important unit of a society and when that unit breaks up then that has to have a major impact on the society, and 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 that is what we're seeing with with all of these uh, unfortunate social changes. Um, and we we seem to be going uh, in the wrong direction um, there as well. Right. Uh, thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Shaquille. Um, that brings us towards the end of uh, the show today. I must thank our producer Sam Rehman, um, uh, as well as uh, Zohan Adheem, uh, researchers Amber Faiza, Safar Hassam, um, excellent help from the tech room, uh, from Mr. Tahir, and, and obviously my co-presenter, Dr. Shakil. It was uh, really a pleasure to, uh, to co-present with you. Um, and I hope this will be the first of many to come. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to our listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. We will be back uh, in a week's time, or I will be back in a week's time. Uh, Dr. Shaquille will be back in uh, two weeks' time with me. Until then, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.
0: Allah.
8: shit.
3: listening to the voice of islam radio
14: Referring to the protector, one who is a guardian. Al-Muhaymin is the one who stands as a witness for his chosen ones and the one who provides security. This benevolent attribute of God is most visible to his protection of his loved ones. The entire life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a testament to the attribute of al muhaimin During the battle of Uhud, there came a time where the enemy had surrounded the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The Muslims exhausted had scattered about the field, leaving the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, alone and exposed. But it was al muhaimin who stood in his defense. He was he who caused the Muslims to assemble and form a ring around the Prophet, peace be upon him. He gave them the strength to fight until they themselves were pierced by the swords of the enemy. He was the reason the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhayman, our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was able to survive. This is just one of many incidents where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life was safeguarded to divine protection. One of the most devoted followers of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed, may God be pleased with him, wrote that God himself was the guardian of the promised Messiah. He was the reason why Talha, may God be pleased with him, could absorb arrow after arrow. The Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhayman, our beloved Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was able to survive. This is just one of the many incidents where the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life was safeguarded through divine protection. The promised Messiah on whom be peace was skilled in swimming and horseback riding. On one occasion He was swimming and nearly drowned. He was saved by an older man whom he had never seen prior to this incident and never saw again. On another instance, he was riding a horse that became uncontrollable, so much so that it crashed into a tree. This proved to be fatal for the horse. But the promised Messiah on whom be peace was miraculously saved without any injury. These are not mere coincidences, nor good luck. This is the work of al muhaimin How else would the promised Messiah on whom we peace be saved by a man who vanished into thin air, or be saved in an accident that killed a mighty animal? The same protection that was afforded to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and the promised Messiah on whom be peace is granted to all believers. al mohamin is the one who protects against the severe and subtle attacks of Satan. He guards against accidental and intentional injury. He stands witness for the truthful and provide security to those without a voice. It is the way of God to protect his believers to become benefactors of the protection of Al-Muhayman. It is incumbent to accept the Imam of the time. <laughs>
9: News, views,
2: discussions, and insights into
9: Islam's perspective on the world today. Join us live
3: throughout the week on the breakfast and drive time shows. Aslamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to
9: the breakfast show.
3: Aslamu Alaikum, peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to another edition of
9: the drive time show. Aslamu Alaikum, hello, and welcome to the voice of Islam living history program
11: and welcome to another edition of book corner where we delve into the wonderful world of literature and explore all its incredible facets
9: join us on voice of islam throughout the week for a wide range of programs for you to enjoy amidst the backdrop of communist ideals and capitalist democracy where the gap between the rich and the poor continues to rapidly increase. In a world which has witnessed the likes of two world wars and a number of recessions, what is Islam's answer to socio-economic inequality? And how does the Islamic solution compare to the efforts of various contemporary movements in alleviating poverty and doing away with wealth disparity? Find the answer in the new world order of Islam, by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, the second successor of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Visit www.alislam.org to read online or download the PDF.